morning, beloved. It is an absolute privilege to be able to stand here at this pulpit this morning and address you. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I did lose my voice about two weeks ago, and I've been out of town the last week traveling for work. Uh, Many hours in the airports, canceled flights, tornado watch, to say the least, it is a joy to be able to stand here today before you. God is sovereign, amen? Amen. And when you trust in his divine providence, there is no room for anxiety, as I learned this week. A special welcome to any visitors here with us this morning. Welcome on behalf of the members of Pacific Hope Church. We are a church that practices expository preaching of the Word of God, which means that we go through one book of the Bible at a time, verse by verse, so that we can glean what the Word means by what it says. Alistair Begg says, it takes a whole Bible to take a whole Christian. We are limping around because we do not read as we ought. We must read the Bible over and over and over again to know what it means by what it says. So as a church, we rely on basic hermeneutical principles in exegeting scripture, namely that context is key and that it all points to Christ. So our Sunday morning worship service is centered around the Word of God. We sing the Word of God, we pray the Word of God, and we preach the Word of God, which has several benefits for us. Namely, it is the primary means of grace for the believer, and it is the power of God unto salvation for the lost. If you're here with us this morning, whether as a fellow believer in the Lord or as someone on the outside looking in, you will leave this place today having heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Isaiah 55.11 tells us that the word of God shall not return void. It will accomplish that which God purposes for it. The word will have its full effect. One way or the other, either to soften hearts where needed or to harden already hard hearts where needed. And so our hope this morning and our prayer is that God would use this time to bless and edify his people and to add souls to his everlasting kingdom. Amen? With that said, uh, we don't follow a liturgical calendar. Um, It was mentioned this morning that it is the start of Passion Week, so we will be taking a small detour from our text in 1 John, where we have been over the last few months, and we will be parachuting into the gospel accounts to look at what is referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus going to Jerusalem a few days before the Passover feast. This is the beginning of Holy Week in the Christian calendar, referred to by some as High Holy Days, but we know that the days themselves are not holy. Rather, it is the holiness of the one to whom they declare that makes it truly worthy of celebration. This morning we are celebrating Palm Sunday. If you've attended church for any amount of time, or perhaps as a kid you grew up going to Sunday school, we can be sure that this account is a familiar one, even so far as sentimental. I recall going to church with my grandmother. I'd get a palm branch to wave around, which my dad will attest I used to anger my sisters. (laughs) And I would hear about the account of Jesus riding to Jerusalem on a donkey, as I'm sure many of you have as well. What does it mean? Why do we celebrate this day? Why do we read this at all? On its face, without context, without exegeting scripture, it is a very peculiar account in the life of Jesus. The same Jesus who walked on water, who was tempted by Satan himself, the same Jesus who turned water into wine, 
here takes a nice two-mile ride on the back of a donkey with people waving palm branches in his face. If you think this is strange and weird, I'm here to tell you that there is much more to this account than meets the eye and much to uncover as, a, as we work our way through the text. So I hope and pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and our minds to receive the text and that we would respond in worship, praise, and adoration for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. May we never gloss over familiar texts. Let's look at this account with fresh eyes that we would see it like the first time. If you would, please open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Jesus according to the Apostle John. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to share with the person next to you or raise your hand and one of the men of the church will get you a copy to use. By way of context, we'll start our reading in chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 55, and our primary focus will be in chapter 12, verses 12 through 19, but starting in chapter 11, verse 55 of the Gospel of John. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because... He was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Here ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word of truth. <clears throat> As we look 
into the start of what is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry, it is of import to know how we got to this point. Jesus' public ministry had amassed a growing crowd of people who had seen many miracles performed in their presence. Jesus had just a few days ago, we read in chapter 9, healed a man who was blind from birth and gave him sight. There was division within the synagogue about how and by what power Jesus could have been performing these miracles. The strife and indignation within the Sanhedrin was coming to a head. The disciples hear through the grapevine that the brother of Mary and Martha, a man by the name of Lazarus, had died. And four days after he was entombed, Jesus came and raised him from death to life. So at this point, the Sanhedrin was convinced that they needed to intervene, plotting not only to kill Lazarus, but to have Jesus arrested so that this growing movement of the way would be stopped. Not only did they fear that Jesus would cause a schism within the synagogue, but they feared their Roman captors, believing that anyone claiming that Jesus was their king would invoke the ire of Caesar, resulting in the taking away of their lands, their freedom to congregate in the temple, and even their lives. So they decided that they would arrest Jesus on sight and kick anyone out who professed him to be Messiah out of the temple permanently. We see by the beginning of John 12 that this crowd of people who were following Jesus from Bethany, which is about two miles away from Jerusalem, was about to be met by an even larger crowd of people who were making the annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to purify themselves before the Passover feast. Jesus was the talk of the town. Many at this point had heard something of this Jesus of Nazareth, and coupled with threats from the synagogue, the people began to chitter about whether Jesus would show his face at all. We began our reading back in chapter 11. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let him know so that they might arrest Jesus. Tensions could not have been higher. Jesus and anyone associated with him were wanted. Yet, in the midst of all of this, we read a beautiful account of a dinner party held in the house of Simon the leper, whom Jesus also healed. In John 12, verse 1, we read that six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. We read in the various gospel accounts that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus joined Jesus and the disciples for dinner with Simon, their host. This intimate dinner, despite the actions of the depraved heart of Judas, culminate in a beautiful picture of Mary anointing Jesus with a fine perfume, 
not only as a foreshadowing of the embalming ceremony after Jesus' death, but I can't help but think it is also in preparation for Jesus to be sacrificed as a fragrant offering, as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Amen? We will see throughout the text this morning that God is perfectly in control of time itself and that nothing happens outside of his holy prescribed will. So while this is going on, word gets out that Jesus is in town and this Lazarus who died was raised and is now eating with Jesus. In verse 9, we see the plot of the Sanhedrin to put Lazarus to death. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. What a testimony, amen? You know, some of us, when we share our testimonies, we focus too much <clears throat> on who we once were prior to Christ saving us. We dwell on who we were, what we used to do, who we used to run with, but we fail at times to realize the profoundness of the fact that we were dead in our sins. We were dead spiritually. Lazarus was dead literally and spiritually. His testimony is easy. Jesus called me out from death to life. And so too should our testimonies point directly at Christ and say the exact same thing. On his account, many were going away and believing in Jesus. Do people come away believing in Jesus on our account? That is, by the example of our life? Are we prepared to receive death threats on account of having faith in Jesus? Something to consider in seeing what is at stake here in the narrative because these tensions, they are continuing to rise. Look with me at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In anticipation of the arrival of Jesus, the crowd who had heard various things about Jesus longed to see him. There was rumors that this Jesus of Nazareth could be the long-awaited Messiah promised in Scripture. He could be the deliverer that the people so desperately wanted to rescue them out from under Roman occupation. They had heard of the miracles. They had seen and heard firsthand accounts from those who had witnessed them. The crowd was looking for a Savior all right, but they were looking for a temporal Savior, a temporal earthly king one who would come and restore the nation of Israel by military victory. They missed the target because their aim was too low. <clears throat> Nevertheless, they hail Jesus as king, and they do so by waving these palm branches, we read, in joyous fanfare and laying them down before Jesus as he makes his way towards the city. Date palms were and still are very plentiful in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, they're prolific, even in the hostility of the desert climate. In a way, they represent our everlasting joy of salvation and Christ's endurance to the end. However, the waving of palm branches had at this time become a nationalistic symbol of the fervent hope that the Messianic liberator had arrived. We know from historical accounts that not 200 years prior to the birth of Jesus, Judas Maccabees and 20 years later his brother Simon Maccabees led revolts against their captors and were hailed in a similar sense 
being met by the people waving palm branches as they returned. The origin of this tradition, however, finds its source in Levitical law. In Leviticus 23, we read of the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, and palm branches were prescribed by God to be used in celebration. You can look at Nehemiah 8 or Zechariah 14 for more detail on this feast, but the feast itself was meant to celebrate the faithfulness of God in delivering the people out of Egypt and for sustaining them through the wilderness journey. As we will continue to see in this text, the Old Testament traditions find their fulfillment in Christ. When God tabernacled among us in human form, condescending to dwell bodily in absolute humility, so too the waving of the actual palm branches has its fulfillment here in John 12. They were always meant to point to the coming king of Israel. They represent strength, power, and victory. It is only fitting that they are used to welcome Jesus into Jerusalem, to welcome Messiah, the true king of true Israel. Look with me, if you will, Psalm 118, which Pastor Robert read from this morning. We also had a great teaching on this psalm a few weeks ago by our brother Pete at the last Sunday in the Psalms. And I would encourage you, if you were not able to attend, to go take a listen to that online. Psalm 118, we will pick up in verse 22. <clears throat> and keep in mind, this is written about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. Psalm 118, 22 reads, The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen and amen. Do we see the sovereignty of God on full display? Here we have another example of Jesus fulfilling messianic prophecy. Several times in the life of Jesus leading up to this account of the triumphal entry, the crowds that had gathered around Jesus wanted to make him their king. And each time Jesus did not let it happen. For example, in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says that, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Back in our text in John 12, we see Jesus contrast his previous attitudes, whereas before he would not accept the accolade of the crowds, here he lets it happen, and he does not withdraw. The time has come. This is the hour for Christ. And a quick note, if you were to read past where we stop today in John 12, you will see that Jesus is grieved over the hardness of the people. However, he does not stop them from doing what they are doing. He lets them wave the palm branches. He lets them sing from Psalm 118, despite their aim being too low. Remember, they were looking for a governmental king and not a king for the sake of the sin-ridden soul. Psalm 118 is a psalm of thanksgiving to the God of Israel for granting his people victory. The psalm was sung during the Hallel feast, that is, during the time of the Passover. 
In our text, we see the people singing this song to the rightful king, but for all the wrong reasons. They missed it. They are lost in the religiosity of their rote traditionalism. Their praise, their song, it fell flat. And still the crowd hails this royal procession with enthusiasm, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew word that means give salvation now. It is a shout of acclamation and praise with overwhelming joy. Interestingly, the word itself is only found elsewhere in Psalm 118, verse 25 that we just read. By way of God's divine sovereign plan, it's worth noting that there are <clears throat> similar shouts of joy and acclamation in the life of Jesus. The first being, at his birth, we learn that the angels give thanks to God, saying in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. Second, we see in this account of the triumphal entry, and then the final shout of joy comes in the book of Revelation chapter 7, which we also read from this morning when it says, with palm branches in their hands, mind you, they cried aloud with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Long live the King. Amen. We'll address the irony of this account to the crowd later, but for now, look back at John 12 and verse 14. <clears throat> and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. <clears throat> Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We learn from the other gospel accounts that Jesus, in his divine foreknowledge, sent two of the disciples to go into town, told them precisely where to find a donkey tied to its mother. He told the disciples exactly what to say so that the owner of the donkey would let them take it and bring it back to Jesus. Other accounts tell us that the disciples laid their cloaks on the foal and that they placed Jesus upon its back. This young donkey had never been ridden. It is unbroken, it is unruly, it is a stiff-necked rebel, yet the same Lord that can calm the sea rides upon a donkey's colt. The colt knows precisely who he's carrying on his back, amen? This is the prince of peace. Creation submits to the creator. In verse 15, we see that it's taken directly from Zechariah 9, Verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Again, prophetic scripture being fulfilled in Christ. By the way, the context of Zechariah 9 is the impending judgment of God towards the enemies of Israel, which is exactly what we see in John 12, the impending judgment of God towards the enemies of God. It's for this reason that Jesus is grieved over the hardness of the people. In the Synoptic Gospels, we get more detail surrounding this portion of the text. We learn in addition to the palm branches, the crowd began to throw down their cloaks on the road. They are in essence rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. This notion is that of casting off our identity before the sovereign. We see a trace of this at the enthronement ceremony of Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13, where the servants of Ahab swear allegiance and fealty to Jehu. 
Verse 13, then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Jesus is our king. And in him, we have a new identity, amen? We who were once slaves to sin are now slaves to righteousness. This is Romans 6 all the way. It is a beautiful sign of submission. Here, literally submission under the feet of the king of all kings. So cease from your fears, Jerusalem. The king has come. This is no accident. This is prearranged, foreordained, predestined by God. Key in on the humility of our Lord. If he had entered Jerusalem publicly according to his actual high status and degree, we would expect that he would have ridden in on a chariot like a conquering king. Yet this king, his kingdom is not of this world. So he comes without outward pomp and circumstance. He comes humbly on a donkey's colt, just as it was foretold. God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Amen. And confuse he does. Look no further than the Lord's own disciples. In verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What struck me particularly about this account in John's gospel versus the synoptic gospels was this text. This is John's commentary on his own narrative account of Jesus' life. Most scholars believe that John wrote this gospel sometime after 70 AD. So as he is remembering to account for all that he witnessed at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, he includes commentary along the way to help us, his readers, understand the things that he himself was not able to understand until after Jesus was glorified. Here in verse 16 is John's humble confession that he and the fellow disciples also completely missed the mark. Like the crowd, their aim was too low. In the midst of all that they had witnessed and serving alongside Jesus, they did not have full insight into what was truly happening. What a vivid example of the necessity of special revelation. The disciples were enabled to understand the scriptures by the same spirit that wrote them. We are enabled to understand the scriptures by the same spirit that enabled the disciples. They had no clue when the Lord asked them to go fetch a donkey that they would be ushering the inauguration of Zion's true king. Don't miss this though. The disciples knew scripture. The crowds knew scripture. The Sanhedrin knew scripture. Yet each group has a vividly different response to Jesus. They were all well-versed in the Torah and in the Psalms and the prophets. It was ingrained in their culture. Yet they all missed the profoundness of this triumphal procession. Question, do we know scripture as we ought? Or have we missed Jesus altogether? Is our knowledge only head knowledge? Or is it heart knowledge? We had an incredible sermon last week from Pastor Sean about knowing how to discern the spirits, amen? Beloved, we as a church love sound doctrine. We love sinking our teeth into scripture and learning theology, yet we accomplish nothing if that knowledge does not result in seeing Christ clearer. When we see Christ for who he is, we see ourselves in light of who we are before him, then and only then can we worship correctly, amen? 
Amen. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. It becomes apparent here in the closing portion of the text that perhaps this was a very slow news cycle in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast. The crowd had been hanging around waiting for Jesus since he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The mere presence of the crowd is enough to bear witness of the deity of Christ and the verification of his deity via these sign miracles. Naturally, it follows that the Pharisees respond with a very reasonable, calm, pious note of dissent, right? No. No, their response is anything but. Notice all of their attempts to quell this little rebellion have not only failed, but perhaps have helped add more and more witnesses to the crowd, more believers in Jesus. As the scene of Jesus riding into Jerusalem reaches this climactic fever pitch, the Pharisees start infighting among themselves and saying to each other, you're gaining nothing. In a dramatic flare of hyperbole, they say, look, the world has gone after him. There goes the neighborhood. Please note that for those who oppose Christ and his kingdom that they actively fight against, they will be made to perceive that they prevail nothing. We know that God will accomplish his own purposes in spite of them, their little efforts of impotence. We know that what man intends for evil, God intends for good. However, the story doesn't end here. Spurgeon reminds us, If you recollect, brothers and sisters, that Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was followed within less than a week by a far different scene. The same crowd that cried Hosanna would cry, we want Barabbas. Away with him, away with him, crucify, crucify, crucify. This world that was supposed to have gone after him, this world nailed him to a cross. I know I'm getting ahead of myself here and we have to preach the cross. Every Sunday is Easter Sunday, amen? We know, beloved, that Christ has gone before us in all things. He has gone before us in life, in temptation, in suffering, and he has gone before us in death. Consider this from the point of view of the disciples. Okay, they had spent the last three or so years following Jesus around. They saw all sorts of miracles that could have only been done by the power of God. Perhaps they themselves had started to believe the crowd's cries of Hosanna. Perhaps they started to believe that Jesus who spoke in parables was this earthly king coming for Jerusalem. The implications of this text are astounding. Christ has this humble entrance into Jerusalem atop a donkey with accolades and fanfare and the rest of the gospel narratives tell us that he goes straight to the temple and he purifies it. He spends Holy Week teaching and preaching and praying He has the last supper with the disciples in the upper room. He institutes the Lord's table, which we'll partake of later. He is betrayed by Judas. He is arrested and under the cover of night and against the law, he is tried and sentenced to death in a kangaroo court. He is condemned by the same crowd that once shouted praises at his coming. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was scorned beyond all human comprehension. And then he was crucified. I know Good Friday is coming and we will see what makes Good Friday good, but there is nothing good 
in and of itself in the process of crucifixion. He was nailed alive to a cross made of wood, the cursed tree in agonizing pain. And then at the precise timing of God, Christ died letting up his spirit. Game over, right? The disciples witnessed all of this. They witnessed the darkness come over the earth. They felt the earth quake. They saw Jesus' lifeless body taken down from the cross. They saw the women take his body and prepare it and bury it in the tomb of a rich man. Perhaps all that they had believed truly was dead. Perhaps it was all for nothing. Their Messiah in whom they hoped would be this conquering hero was gone. And in fear that they too may suffer a similar fate, they ran and they hid. They were wanted men, guilty by association. Peter had denied Jesus three times for fear of the guilt of being associated with Jesus. For the disciples, it was time to get out of town, change your name, start fresh. It is the Witness of Jesus Protection Program. So why then are we reading this little excerpt from John? Why were the Gospels penned at all, let alone the epistles, let alone the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ? If there is no hope that Jesus is Messiah, then there is no reason to write any of it down. There's no reason for the New Testament of the Bible. There's no reason for the disciples to continue on the fledgling church. There's no reason to spread the Gospel throughout the known world. If not for the resurrection, there is no hope. But God, brought again from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. And he appeared to the disciples over the next 40 days bodily. He taught them how all of Scripture is fulfilled in him. He gave them the Holy Spirit to help and understand all that Christ truly is. In Luke 24 and verse 27, we read of Jesus explaining on the road of Emmaus to two of the disciples all of the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets. If you jump down to verse 45, he appears to the rest of the disciples and does what? He opens their mind to understand the scriptures. Perfect understanding in a moment of time. What grace. It is the necessity of grace alone that opens the eyes, unstops the ears, changes the heart, and makes us sing. Our understanding of Scripture, special revelation, it is by grace alone. Amen. Paul tells us in Philippians 3 that he counts everything earthly, everything temporal, as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. It was the resurrection of Jesus that the disciples hope was restored. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is the doctrine upon which all scripture hangs. Without it, Christianity fails. Without it, Christianity is a lie. Without it, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we are gathered here today as a bunch of fools to be pitied. The disciples did not hedge their bets. No, after the resurrection, they went all in for Jesus, all in for his gospel, and would die for the sake of Christ. Things did not end well in an earthly sense for the disciples, but they knew the cost. They knew the worth of knowing Christ, and they know how much it cost for Christ to know them. But we're not done yet. This account, <clears throat> this narrative of Jesus riding into Jerusalem only to be arrested, tried, and to die, it's only half of the equation. This is the passive obedience of Christ, meaning he went willingly to the cross, knowing that it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. Yes, his blood does cleanse us from sin, but why? Why does Christ need to die and not another sacrificial lamb? 
Here's the problem. Sin. Sin entered the world through Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam, being the federal head of mankind, spread sin from generation to generation. It is in our Adamic nature that we are sinners and therefore we sin. There's an inherent void between God and man. We in our Adamic state are at enmity with God. We are at war with the creator of the universe. We need peace. We need righteousness and we need reconciliation. God is thrice holy, 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 and he hates sin. And there is no way for us to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law. It's impossible. The only way to restore that which is lost in Adam is for a true and better Adam to come and actively fulfill the law on our behalf, which would take the power of God alone to do. And it's exactly what he did in Jesus, the second Adam, the second person of the Godhead, fully God and fully man. His active obedience was living a perfect, sinless life. He upheld the law down to the iota. Yet he offered this perfect, sinless life up for us on the cross. He laid down his life and suffered the penalty of sin, the full unmitigated wrath of God, so that his blood could atone for sin once and for all and forever as a ransom for many who would believe in him. More than this, he was resurrected, validating all that he said he would do. Do you believe in him? I beg of you, I plead of you, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, repent. Repent and believe these words are trustworthy and true. Repent while there is air in your lungs. Turn away from your current way of living. Turn away from this wretched sin that entangles, knowing that you cannot do it by yourself. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. Only he can give you mercy and only he can give you peace. I pray sincerely that today would be the day of salvation for you. May Jesus Christ grant you belief. Beloved, we have seen in our text today that Christ is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Amen. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the conquering hero. He has conquered death itself. At the same time that this account is going on, God and his divine sovereignty, there's another procession going on. In Jerusalem at this precise time, the sacrificial lambs were being led up for slaughter. The Kidron Valley would run red with the blood of lambs being prepared for the festal feast. Jesus' royal procession would end the very same way. Our heavenly king did not have a royal court. <clears throat> His courtiers were Galilean fishermen, a tax collector, a trader, and others of low, ignoble birth. Our heavenly king did not ride into the holy city to claim what was rightfully his on the back of a white charger or a war horse. No, he came on the low back of a donkey. His coronation would not include jewels and gold. Rather, his crown was that of thorns. His exaltation was not to be upon an earthly throne. Rather, he was lifted up on a Roman cross. Our heavenly king was not arrayed in royal robes of rare purples. No, he was displayed in his own crimson blood which flowed. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, amen? And he will come again in much, much different uh, way. If you turn with me, Revelation 19, we'll end here. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. 
Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for who you are and what you have done and accomplished through the worth and work of your son, Jesus, the Christ, Messiah, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for your scripture, Lord, which is breathed out and is profitable. We thank you for giving us special revelation to understand these deep truths. We thank you, Lord, uh, for salvation. Lord, we have fellowship through the blood of your son, Jesus. That is why we are gathered here today, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. We thank you, Lord, uh, for this triumphal procession. We thank you for what it points towards. We look forward to hearing more of your word uh, proclaimed on Good Friday and next week during Easter service, Lord. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.